You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey there, it's Max. So you might remember, around this time last year, we did a five-part series of interviews with winners of the prestigious George Polk Journalism Award, and I am very happy to say we're back. We're doing it again. Every day this week, Monday through Friday, we're going to air an interview with a different Polk Award winner discussing the work that earned them the award. And I just want to say, on a like somewhat optimistic note, the competition this year was stiff. The Polk Awards got a record number of submissions this year and from a record number of outlets, which just feels to me like a real testament to the enduring value and power and importance of investigative journalism. So some of the people that you'll hear from this week are folks that you've heard on the show before, but some of them are brand new to the podcast, including this first guest, Clarissa Ward. Clarissa is the chief foreign correspondent at CNN, and she won her Polk Award for her real-time coverage last summer from Afghanistan as the Taliban came to power and U.S. forces withdrew. You might remember it was a deeply chaotic time, and we talked about how she makes sense of the chaos of a moment like that. We also talked about how she managed to interview Taliban leaders amidst all that chaos. And I also was just curious about how she balances doing this job, reporting from conflicts and war zones. She actually talked to me from Ukraine with her life at home, with her family. So here's my conversation with Clarissa Ward, and stay tuned for the rest of the week. We got more interviews with George Polk Award winners coming your way. Clarissa, thanks so much for doing this, and congratulations on your Polk Award. Oh, thank you so much, Max. It's very exciting. You got to tell me where you are in the world right now, because I imagine it's rarely the same place. You are right, indeed. We are currently in eastern Ukraine in a city called Dnipro, which is sort of towards the center of the country. And we're kind of using it as a base to go out and do stories in the east. How long have you been in Ukraine for? I think now it's about two weeks. But to be honest, I start to lose track a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that on some level, you start to lose track both of time and of place. Like, do these things blend together? They do, because it's been, I think we just worked out that we've spent nine weeks in Ukraine this year. Wow. And it tends to blur into one big amorphous kind of blob. We've been in Kiev and Kharkiv and Mariupol just before the war and Dnipro and Avdivka and yeah, a lot of different places. Do the conflicts blend together or are they distinct for you? The conflicts themselves do not blend together. They're pretty distinct. But when you cover a certain conflict for an extended period of time, that can start to get blurrier. You start to lose track a little bit of 
days of the week, for example. I mean, I know today is Monday, but generally speaking, it usually takes me a second to remember what day it is. And how are you holding up yourself? Like, in addition to, you know, time sort of collapsing, I, I imagine that a stretch this long must just be unbelievably exhausting. It is. It is exhausting and it's very draining. I mean, primarily, obviously, because you're dealing with so much heartache and trauma that people have been living through. But then also on a more mundane level, Ukraine is a vast country. So you're every day driving usually at least three or four hours. And it's been pretty cold the last couple of months and sort of gray and and often rainy or snowy. And so it, it can be hard sometimes to stay like really chipper. You rely a lot on adrenaline in a situation mm. like this. And especially when you're away from your family. And so you're feeling homesick and, but you just also have another voice that is the stronger, more powerful voice, which is just telling you it's really important to be doing this work. And right. there'll be a time to have some sunshine and be with my family soon, hopefully. Well, I imagine that most times when you decide to leave, it feels like your choice. But I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how you left Afghanistan last year at the end of this reporting that you won the award for. Could you sort of tell me the story of how you got out of the country? Sure. Well, we had already been there for about two weeks when the Taliban took power. So we were pretty exhausted already. And a lot of journalists on the day the Taliban took over went immediately to a hotel, which is inside the airport compound. Our situation was a little bit different because we were outside of the airport. We were just in the center of town. And so when it came time for us to evacuate about a week or so after the Taliban had taken control, the most challenging part of that was trying to navigate how we would get into the airport and out of the country. Because it wasn't like there was a special entrance for journalists or NGO workers. And as you well know, there were tens of thousands of Afghans gathered outside the airport desperately trying to flee. And we were told that there was a door that was not being used as much by people that they were not aware of it. And we were told to go there at seven in the morning. And so we left our uh, the house where we were staying really early, like 5.30. You had to sort of talk your way through some Taliban checkpoints. But that was easier for us as foreigners because they kind of wanted us to leave anyway. We got there at like 6.30. But when we got to this door, I saw that there were dozens and dozens of people already outside who were just waiting for that moment when the door would crack open and they could try to push themselves in. And so then there was this realization that we were going to have to try to like push and shove our way in, which is um, sort of a horrible thing to have to do yeah. because it raises all sorts of questions like why do I get to leave and you don't and how can I push someone out of the way and it's the woman is carrying a baby and there are children, and people are screaming. And so we basically formed a human chain. You and your crew. Yeah. 
my Afghan colleague Shafi Kakar and another Afghan woman who worked in the house where we were staying. And we sort of formed a human chain, but like 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 a long line as opposed to out horizontally. And we didn't take anything. We left almost all our gear there, just whatever we could carry on our backs. And the door opened because someone behind it had agreed to let us in. And we just started pushing. Wow. But the minute the door opened, it was just mayhem people screaming pushing shoving grabbing and then what happened i I put this afghan woman um medina in front of me because i knew it was going to be harder for her to get in than it would for me and so i was pushing medina and then someone was pushing me from behind they weren't actually leaving with us but they were just trying to give some extra sort of manpower Mm -hmm. and I saw my first few colleagues go in and then the crowd started to swallow us up. And then I was kind of separated. And this, um, this soldier basically came out and grabbed my arm and just like ripped me in through the door. And for a while I had this like big bruise on my arm from where he had grabbed me. But honestly, I just sort of burst into tears like the minute the door closed behind us because it just was, it was just so awful seeing all those people and there was like sewage around and people are like wading through it. And again, it's just the randomness of like why I have this little blue book mm-hmm. that allows me to come and go as I please and other people don't have that privilege, even though many of them had worked for the United States in various capacities. What's that moment like when you finally take off, like as you're as you're flying away? There was a certain degree of relief because the day I was there, flights stopped for 10 hours. There were no flights taking off. But after about 10 hours, we finally got on that plane. You take off. And for me, there was a lot of guilt because I was like, I should have stayed longer. I could have stayed longer. And then there was also just a feeling of like humility in this moment and looking around like hundreds of people shoehorned into this massive plane and all these people having no idea where they're going, what the future held for them, what happens to the people they left behind. And, you know, a lot of people tend to think that when refugees leave a country, it's like, oh, relief, happiness. But actually, it's just the beginning of another nightmare. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of nightmare. It's not necessarily a sort of question of life and death anymore. But it's a it's an incredibly challenging journey ahead for them. How did you get so connected with the Taliban, like how do you actually do that reporting? I mean, you did these incredible interviews in the run-up to the fall of Kabul. How did you get in those rooms? So we were working with a British-Afghan filmmaker, uh, Najibullah Qureshi, who has been making documentaries about the Taliban for pretty much 20 years. I had been to visit the Taliban with him in the north of the country about two years earlier. And then after we arrived in Afghanistan in August, we went and visited the Taliban in Ghazni province. So by the time the Taliban took power, 
I already felt pretty comfortable operating with them. Not in the sense that there was like a huge amount of friendliness there per se, but there was a kind of set of rules or like a code, which if you abided by that, they would sort of abide by their end. And, you know, a lot of people made quite a lot of the fact that I was dressed very conservatively those first few days reporting. And that was how I had been told previously that I had to dress with the Taliban. That was part of the code. That was part of the code. It was you have to agree to segregation in terms of like you'll sleep in one place and the rest of your crew or men will sleep in another. Uh, you have to dress very conservatively. I refused to wear a full facial covering, a niqab, but I had to wear the abaya and like the full headscarf. A few days into the Taliban taking control, it became clear that, okay, I didn't necessarily have to dress in the way that I had before with them, that I could wear loose-fitting clothes and a headscarf without sort of covering all my hair. But those first few days, we were extremely cautious because it was a it was a dangerous situation. And particularly when we were reporting outside the airport, which was just, you know, mayhem. Absolute chaos. Did being forced to sleep in a different place, did that impact your reporting at all? Yeah, it did. Because, you know, this is the thing that people sometimes forget. I can spend time with women. And my male colleagues can't. So I was forced in Ghazni province to sleep with the women and children in a different part of the house completely. Mm-hmm. And I obviously couldn't, I don't sadly speak Dari or Pashto, but I would write down a few phrases or record a few phrases. Yeah, um, you, you only speak like six languages <laughs> or something, right? And so I was basically just talking to them, not understanding half of what they were telling me. Although at one point, a a son came in who did speak some English. And so I was able to really get a sense of these women's experiences, which in many ways was like a, a huge blessing and really informed my reporting. And I think maybe gave it a, a nuance that you don't always see because it's so difficult for most people to have access to Afghan women living in deeply conservative areas. How do you approach the work of trying to explain and simplify situations that feel, at least to me, like so nuanced and complicated, but also totally chaotic? You know, when you think about that scene outside the airport, like there's all of these geopolitical forces at play, but it's also just uh, throngs of people trying to figure out how they're going to survive. Like, how do you find a way to have that kind of moment make sense to someone sitting on their couch in New York or Milwaukee or Seattle? I think the most important thing when you're in the moment is to really just paint a picture for people. You probably don't want to dig deep into the geopolitics in a moment like that because Mm -hmm. you're going to lose the power of the moment. And, And I really do think television is about the power of the moment. And I'll never forget talking to a 60 Minutes producer. This is when I was working at 60 Minutes and we were talking about what made Bob Simon's work so great. 
And the producer was explaining to me, you know, he doesn't just describe the scene as in saying lots and lots of people are running. He he uses words that elevate the scene. Mm -hmm. And that has always stayed with me. And so I'm always in those moments trying to think of, yes, let me describe to you what is literally going on around me. But let me also try with my words to somehow elevate the moment so that you understand and can feel how powerful and how important it is. There's a moment that happened recently in Ukraine where you were reporting on refugees fleeing across a destroyed bridge and an elderly man walked up behind you. He had sort of stumbled. He looked pretty out of it. And you just sort of stopped and helped him along. And I wonder if that's a form of elevating too, of like responding to some level of humanity in the moment. Yeah, I think that traditionally when we look at television news, there's been a lot of the voice of God, these sort of stand and deliver pieces to camera where it's like the people of Ukraine say what they want is this. And 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 you know what, that that was great and it's time. But in today's news ecosystem, it feels a little stiff mm -hmm. and maybe a little artificial. And I think what's more interesting to me is exploring organic moments and being in the moment. And when, I, to be honest, in the moment that you're talking about, I gave it like no thought. I just, the man literally grabbed my hand. He was almost stumbling. So I tried to help him. And then this woman had all these bags. So I grabbed her bags and took, and I was just doing honestly what any of us would do. But in that context, it sort of struck a chord with people. Mm -hmm. I think because it felt like an authentic organic moment and because there was this small element of humanity to it, which against the backdrop of this vicious war, I think felt sort of moving. And I think it allowed people to kind of break through the fourth wall, so to speak, and connect with the scene. Because suddenly I wasn't just standing in front of it talking about it. We were in it. Is that something that you can get better at? Being in a moment like that? I think I'm just working it out as I go along. But I do think that this is the big difference between network and cable. Because at CNN, I was doing those live shots sometimes for 20 minutes on the streets of Kabul. And, and so when you are in that position, the whole thing changes. It's more about like, hey, we're on the streets of Kabul together. Let's explore. Let's see what we mm -hmm. find. Let's see who we can talk to. And did you notice this? And did you notice that? And so the whole thing has a real informality to it that I think is actually really allows viewers to feel that they're closer to the experience of being there. And I feel like the more natural we are and the more real we are, I don't think that has to compromise the reporting. I think you can be a human being and be a reporter at the same time. I know that the answer to this question has to be yes, but I'm interested in the layers of it. I mean, how fearful are you 
in these moments. I mean, your job is to go to the most dangerous places in the world. How scared are you? If you're not scared, you're stupid. Because fear is a really important emotion. Evolutionarily, it tells us when we're in danger and when we need to get out. So you, you should feel scared. But you make sure that your rational mind is in the driver's seat, calling the shots and making the decisions. And so I want to make sure that the car is right there, that it's pointing in the right direction, that I have an exit, that the gunshots are coming from over there, that the crazy person who is shooting, I am standing behind them. You you have a lot of things going on in your mind Mm -hmm. to try to make sure that you are minimizing the risk that you're, you're subjecting yourself to. But I also know like at the airport in Afghanistan, for example, there was a really scary day we had there with gunshots going off nonstop. These Taliban fighters nearly cracked open my producer Brent Swale's head. And literally it was this close. And the next day it was like, should we go back to the airport? Because that was the obvious place to go back. And we were just like, no, mm-hmm. no. We did it yesterday. We gave people a really real sense of the chaos, but we're not just going to keep going back and exposing ourselves to that level of danger just to, you know, fill air. So it's all about calculated risk, taking the risks when you need to and and being smart about how you take them. And do you think that at some point how you calculate risk will change? Like, is there a time when doing this work will be less worth it than it is to you now? I think having kids already shifted that. I mean, there are certain risks I would have taken back in the day that I would not want to take anymore. And I think also as you get older and a bit more experienced, you sort of know yourself a bit better. So for me personally, like, I care about people. That's what drives me. That's what fascinates me. That's what I find to be the most compelling storytelling. I'm not the best person to send out embedded with troops into an empty village to watch some epic battle play out. There's people who are much, much better at that than I am. And it's a high risk. And for me, the reward isn't there because if there aren't people in the village, then it doesn't sort of speak to me as much. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's constantly shifting and evolving, but I can't imagine not doing this work anymore. That makes sense to me. It's like a constant conversation with yourself about what you can do and what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always evolving. Before I let you go, I saw this quote from you. I think it was in a conversation with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. And you said, we're so protected from those moments of just sheer survival in our Western lives. And that quote made so much sense to me because I feel very protected from those moments in my Western life. And I wonder how you navigate that for yourself, how you bounce between these moments of sheer survival and then like go back to London and, you know, have a coffee with your friend. Like how do you bounce between those extremes it's hard it's really hard it's probably the hardest part of this job because you start to feel a little bit like you don't belong anywhere and 
So I used to come back from war zones and feel completely disconnected from my life, disconnected from my friends, from my family. I would look down on people about the conversations they were having about silly things. I would feel kind of numb and miserable. And then I realized that if you want to be able to keep doing this work, you have to choose to embrace the privileges that you've been given. And you have to choose joy and choose love and you know, be kind to yourself and have a glass of wine and go dancing or run up a mountain, whatever it is that does it for you, embrace it. Like that is part of the, the tax you pay for surviving these things is that you've got to continue to love life. And it's really easy to become disengaged from life. Mm. I think you also get a, just a different perspective. So I look at a lot of the culture wars that are going on in our societies. And to me, it's fascinating, but it's all existing within a bubble that is, is a very privileged bubble to be in. And so I count myself as lucky that I have at least experienced or seen how others experience life outside the bubble. But you... It's really hard to deal with that sort of bouncing between totally different dynamics and trying to reconcile that shift internally. Yeah, I can imagine just, you know, you're talking to me from a hotel room in Ukraine and been there for two weeks and know what day it is, but not a ton else. Like <laughs> uh, going from that back to your regular life must be strange. It is. And sometimes like, I mean, actually talking to you is not that strange because, you know, you're just asking lots of questions, which is easier in some ways. But sometimes it's hard, like talking to my family, even talking to my kids. It's like, yeah, there's also you have to compartmentalize a lot when you're doing this work, because if you let yourself go there, you're like, oof, that that hurts, actually, you know. It's easier to keep that door a little bit closed while I'm here. And then when you get out, you have to make sure that you that you do try to sit with it and, and feel all the feelings because you can't really do that when you're in the field, but you've got to make sure you do it when you get out because otherwise it will catch up with you. And make sure that you uh, run up a mountain and have a glass of wine and go dancing. Yeah. It's just like the to-do list never ends. <laughs> Clarissa, I can't thank you enough for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Me too. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Max. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Susan Peterson. Thanks to her. Thanks to John Darton and everyone at the Polk Awards for making this series happen. We'll have a new interview with another Polk Award winner for you tomorrow and a new one every day for the rest of the week. Back to the regularly scheduled programming next week. Thanks to Vox, with whom we make this show. And thanks so much to Clarissa Ward for taking some time to talk to me from Ukraine about how she does this job. Okay, more tomorrow. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.